All right, let's go ahead and open up your Bibles. It's going to take us a little bit to get there, but you can open up to 1 Corinthians 12. That's where we're eventually going to get to where you're going to need to turn in your Bibles. When I was 16, my basketball coach gave me a task to do throughout the summer. I was about, um, you know, six foot eight, about 140 pounds, and uh, I could turn sideways and disappear. It was a really cool trick. And so my coach was like, I need you to get better at something. And he wanted me to get better at outlet passing, where you grab the ball off the, you, the rebound and you turn and you pass it down court to start the fast break. He wanted me to be faster. And so he said, take a medicine ball and go against the wall and do a thousand overhead passes a day, right? It's probably why my shoulders are ruined. <laughs> and so I went and did that every day during the summer, thousand uh, overhead passes against the wall. Came to the time where the season started, and I got back in the gym, and uh, the coach said, hey, let's see how you did. And I, I took the ball, and I almost put a hole in the wall. I could pass it so fast, right? And I could outlet it as far as you wanted. I could throw it overhead about the, the distance of a football field. But the problem was, was that the second I tried to use it uh, with someone who was moving, there was a slight problem, right? I would miss them because I was expecting them to be stationary like a wall, the problem was, was that I had this great growth and this training, but because I wasn't actually acting it out with another person in a team sport, it kind of broke down a little bit. And I found myself uh, really great as an individual in this capacity, um, but not great at all with the rest of my team. My fear for the church today, and the church worldwide, but specifically in the Western church, is that we're in the same dilemma. It is possible, and this is my opinion, but it's possible that we may have emphasized individual devotion and the growth of an individual so much that it's been elevated to the detriment of the corporate body of Christ. And I believe firmly that without one, the other will suffer. So what I hope to present to you today in the second part of our series on why Mission Fellowship has the need to change is that a Christian needs the church to grow. You can write that down. A Christian needs the church to grow. You can grow by yourself on a deserted island, but the problem is, is to grow to the sanctification that the Lord desires in our life and wants to bless us with, we need the church. Last week, I introduced this topic to you by giving you the answer to the question, why did mission need to change? My, my answer was basically twofold. First, I said that in both our evangelization and our discipleship, we want to give a balanced view of the fullness of the story of salvation. We want to talk about not just justification, but justification, sanctification, and glorification. Our premise there is that in the well-intentioned attempt to emphasize justification as a means to gaining converts, many in the church have unknowingly inoculated new believers against the understanding of the cost of following Jesus and the necessity of endurance. And secondly, I stated that as, leadership, as a leadership group, we are not responsible for any other pastor, church, or group of Christians. We are responsible for this church, and one day we will have to give account for this church. And so we must stand in our conviction of what it is to be obedient to what we see as Scripture's call in leading this church. We can't speak for other churches. We can't speak for other pastors or leaders. We know that some will disagree with us, and guys, that is okay. It's okay. Because a lot of what we're talking about is secondary issues. What I'm hopefully showing you, though, in the midst of this series are all the texts and some of the ideas and themes that we as leadership have really had to wrestle with to see if we are obedient or not, 
And I ask that you would do that same wrestling. And so today, we will continue looking a bit more in depth at some of those changes. And I want you all to wrestle with these texts that we are going to go through. And so the first thing I want us to ponder today is the question, what part, if a Christian needs the church to grow, what part does the church play in bringing about obedience in the life of the Christian? Right? Most of the world, especially the Western world, has gotten used to just attending church. You just go. And in the Western world, it's very much based in consumerism. I go, I get my uh, consumer product, whether that be great worship or whether that be a good teaching, uh, whether that be a motivational speech, whatever it might be that I'm getting at that church, and then I go about my business. And so this idea of what part the church plays in bringing about obedience in the life of the Christian has been largely lost, in my opinion. And so to tackle this overall question, this is basically the one main thing we're going to be covering today. To tackle this, we have to break it down into some sub-questions. And we need to first define what we mean by the church. Because would you agree with me that that's a bit of an ambiguous statement? People have different definitions of that. And so the core difference that we need to figure out is where do we stand in this idea of what the church is? And so I want to first introduce to you the spectrum of disagreement on what defines the church, okay? You talk to one person and they have one definition of the church, and you talk to another person and they they have another definition of the church. And quite honestly, in a lot of cases, I agree with most of the people I talk to about this. I think that where I've come to and where our leadership group has come to is a certain spot kind of in the middle, and I'll show you what that means. The first thing we have to acknowledge is that there are differences on this topic. The core difference is whether the church is supposed to be an ambiguous group or a specific group in its definition. On the one end of the spectrum, to the left there, you have those that believe the church is simply a way of talking about anyone who's a Christian. In this case, the individual is the one that gets to define the church and whether or not they or another person are a part of it. Right? We've talked about this before, the idea of the cloud, (laughs) right? You know, where does my, my software send my document? It's in the cloud, right? Nobody knows where it's at, but it's just kind of there. Well, that's the idea here. It's the ambiguous church. On the other end of the spectrum, the church has all the power in defining who is a Christian and who is not. And not to single them out, because I have many uh, family and friends who are strong Christians who are Catholics, um, but that's basically the Catholic church. That's the Catholic church sets that, okay? Our view at mission is in the middle, We fall right in the dead center. We are thankful for the freedom and autonomy that the Reformation brought the Christian, right? Because it has to be first individual in salvation. But then we also are thankful for the body because the body of the local church has a part to play in affirming who is a Christian. They don't get to state that you're a Christian. You get to do that. But the church has a part to play in affirming it for you or, in the case of unrepentant sin, questioning it for you. So how do we move from this spectrum of disagreement to the definition of what the church is? Well, I'm going to ask a few questions here to help us understand the definition. In so doing, hopefully we'll answer this greater question of how the church helps bring about obedience in the life of a Christian. You guys with me so far? Yeah? Okay. So the first question I want to look at that is uh, going to help us define is this. To whom do you belong... And to whom do you submit? To whom do you belong and to whom do you submit? And I, again, will, like I did last week, call out a great elephant in the room that this is going to seem very self-serving because I'm the pastor of the church. 
And so everybody sees that word submit, and our culture has been um, wired to think abuse. How is our leadership team going to abuse you? But hopefully as we go through this, you're going to see that the whole goal in doing what we're doing is to actually give you greater power so that we as leaders have to submit to you just as we ask you to submit to us. It actually is an equalization, okay? So hopefully you'll see that as we go through this. Where this question comes into play is not when everyone is getting along, but when one of us as a believer decides to step outside the commands of Christ and the boundaries that he places on us as his disciples. When this occurs because we know that unrepentant sin leads to destruction, the rest of our church should lovingly step in to warn our brother or sister of their potential pitfall. The reason I think this is lost in the church is we no longer look at sin as destructive. Right? If I see a brother who I love dearly, let's say one of the deacons, and I see him wrestling with flirtation and the potential for adultery, what kind of a pastor would you think I was if I were like, eh, boys will be boys. He'll figure it out. The Holy Spirit will help him. Right? It's akin to somebody who has a child. You know, let's say you're on a cliff. Oh, look, they're getting so close to the cliff. Gee, isn't that sweet? I hope the Holy Spirit tells him to stop, right? What kind of a parent would you be? Why don't you answer that for me? Terrible. Terrible. You would be. You'd be terrible, right? And so we have to look at sin and realize that it is as destructive and dangerous, and so we have to hold our brothers and sisters back from that, not against their will so forcefully that we harm them, but we should at least say something. Hey, cliff edge, don't go. Don't go. Don't go near that, Okay? Now, this can become quickly abusive and manipulative if the structure of a church or the heart of any one believer within the church is not following the loving will of Christ. If they're not motivated by love but by power, well, then you've got a power paradigm that is no different uh, than an abusive anything, husband, pastor, boss. But just because something can be used wrongly does not mean that it is in and of itself wrong. Guys, how badly does our society abuse marriage? Should we as Christians toss out the God-given institution of marriage? No, just because it's used wrongly. To obey the commands of Christ, a church must create a structure in which we can all freely operate in loving obedience to Christ. And all of us are accountable to one another. It must be a structure in which all, and I mean that in big, bold capital letters, all of the body, including the individual leaders, myself included, are held just as accountable as the congregants. And this is what is outlined in Christ's command to the church in how to deal with conflict. Take a look with me. You can turn there if you want, but we'll have it on the board. At Matthew 18, 15. Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Let's take a read here at what Christ commands the church to do. And as you're reading this, I want you to do what we as leadership had to do and what I as an individual had to do. And I want you to ask the question, is this how I operate? Am I obedient to this command of my Savior? Okay? And then as a church, we have to ask the question, do we have the structure in place to even obey this command? Okay? If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. In other words, guys, there is no such thing as passive aggressiveness in the church. Passive aggressiveness is the poison and cancer of good fellowship. If you're a person who's like, well, I just am kind of passive aggressive, repent. Just repent. I have nothing more to say on that. Repent. But if he does not listen, 
Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is basically like if the person says, well, I hear that you're saying I'm sinning, but I don't quite agree. I think you're taking this out of context. You go and you get a mediator, another person to come and help you figure it out so that you have a third party to witness against it. Not to slam the person, but to help mediate. Because quite honestly, guys, as obedient Christians, this should be as far as it ever goes. If Patrick and I, let's say, as elders are having a disagreement and we're arguing and, and one of us has sinned against the, uh, the other and both of us are just stuck in disagreement, well, we should go to Tyler or we should go to Kelly or we should go to Dallas and say, come mediate. And those people led by Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit will sit down and go, Hans, you're wrong. And I'll go, done, repenting right now. That's as far as it goes. That's how we obey Christ as Christians. I don't keep pressing and pushing. I go, okay, the Holy Spirit is telling me by these two people that I need to repent. That's basically what this is saying, okay? If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now, question. Let's say you're the person who's in unrepentant sin. Is this the appropriate context for me to get up here on the stage and be like, so, by the way, did you guys all hear what Tyler did? He's unrepentant, so, sorry, Tyler. Right? We got visitors, right? Somebody brought their mom and dad that Sunday. It's like, oh, my gosh, what is happening right now? Right? Because all we ever used to define who was the church previously was who attended on a Sunday. That's not what this is talking about. Okay? If he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, meaning outside the covenant of faith. Then he says, Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. The number one reason I know that we in the church do not understand this section of text is because how many times have you heard that last sentence taken out of context to talk about how your Bible study group is where the Spirit is present? That is a misuse of that scripture. It is a truth. The Spirit is present in your Bible study, but don't use that scripture to state that truth. This is about the authority of God being present in the body of Christ to be his ambassadors speaking on his behalf in his authority. The command of Christ to deal with conflictual sin in our midst is to go to one another and lovingly converse. And if there is a disagreement, like I said, a third party can step in to mediate. But if that person refuses to repent, the command of our Savior and King is to take that to the church. This is, in other words, the nuclear option where the church lovingly uses its relational capital to convince a brother or sister to stop messing with sin. In other words, step back from the cliff. It is at this point that the church states clearly that the unrepentant brother or sister is still bound, that's the binding, to their sin, or if they repent, that they are loosed, that's the loosing, from their sin. This same language is only used one other place in the entire Bible. And it's just two chapters earlier in Matthew 16. This is Matthew 16, verses 15 through 19. This is where Peter and Jesus are talking, and Jesus asks Peter, Hey, what, what do you think I am? Who am I? People say I'm, you know, the prophet. People say I'm a king. Who do people say I am? And this is what happens. Jesus asks them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Mashiach, the anointed one, the son of the living God. In other words, you're the fulfillment of the Old Testament. 
And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, we as Protestants flip out at that, and we're like, he wasn't talking about Peter. He was talking about his message. Guys, he was talking about Peter. The grammar is very clear. He was talking about Peter as the lead of the church, and he was talking about Peter's statement as the basis of faith. And he says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, the church. I will give you, Peter, the leader of the apostles, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This idea of the keys of the kingdom, right? It means authority. Jesus is told to be, or is said to be the one who has the keys in Revelation. And what he's doing is he's giving Peter his authority, not in replacement of him, but as an ambassador that speaks on his behalf. And what does he say he has the power to do? To say to someone, you are stuck in your sin, or praise God, you are repentant from your sin. In other words, the job of the church and the leaders of the church is to help a person understand if they're messing with sin. Now, I can already sense the tension in the room and everybody becoming uncomfortable because we're autonomous, pioneer Northwesterners who hate having anyone else meddle in our lives. Please, I love you enough to say, put that down for a second and ask yourself the question, is this a command of Jesus? It is. Now, you might say, but Hans, no one but Christ has the power to forgive my sins. And you are absolutely correct. But Christ also gave the authority here to the church to rightly identify when someone's actions are not aligning with their profession of faithfulness to Christ. Guys, think about if the church were actually doing this, how much less ammunition the secular world would have to say, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. Your profession of faithfulness doesn't match your deeds. If the church did its job and helped us as Christians connect the two, that ammunition would be largely gone, and we would be doing our job of reflecting Christ to a greater degree. Look at John 20, verses 19 through 23 with me here. On the evening of that day, this is after Christ died and resurrected, the first day of the week, because look, the church was gathering on Sunday, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. There's that sending as an ambassador, speaking on his behalf. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and gave them the Holy Spirit. And he said, Receive the Holy Spirit. This is where everybody gets uncomfortable. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. In other words, each individual within this church is given responsibility and authority in the life of every other person that is this church. Now, to force that on all of you who attend on a Sunday would be abusive. So part of this process is to say, who wants to be held accountable to this standard? And most American Christians who go to non-denominational churches who aren't in membership, they go there partially because they would go, I don't want to be held accountable to that. Mm-mm. I live my own life. But guys, this is scripture. Are we obedient to this? Do we give each other this place in our life? Part of what covenant membership is is saying, I'm giving that place over to you. 
I want to be held accountable to that. You see, I came to a place in my life, guys, you know my history and my testimony. This is not shocking news to any of you. I was a porn addict for a number of years early in my college life. And I wrestled with that year after year. And I got to a place in my walk where it was so damaging to my wife and my kids. Well, my kids weren't around yet, but you know, it was like just terrible, right? As a deacon and an elder at my church, I'm sitting there going, I am a hypocrite. I should not be in leadership. I was broken. And I finally had to come to the place where I had to say to someone, I hate that cliff ledge and I can't seem to stop going near it. Please, somebody help me. And I reached out to a bunch of brothers. And I eventually reached out to a counselor. And I eventually reached out to seminary professors. And I have so much accountability and so much covering now in that area. I praise God for it every day. Because that allowed me to start creating a new habit where I slowly but surely on my own power started to step back from the ledge. But I needed the body to help me. If we take seriously that edge, that ledge, you will want whoever can help you in your life. You will stop dealing with the lie that is, I can sanctify myself. And so this church fills a role where we can define for a believer in real time that they are about to step outside the boundary of safety and submission to Christ by continuing an unrepentant sin and identifying for them, affirming for them what they already know, that they are still bound to their sin. And when they repent, we can rejoice with them and walk with them and pray with them and encourage them that they are in the will and obedience of Jesus Christ. And so we can summarize these thoughts in this section into one statement, that a person's local church is the covenant community of God's people to which one belongs and to whom one submits. There's a definition, part of the definition of what your local church is to you. The covenant community of God's people to which one belongs and to whom one submits. I find it interesting that in our society we will gladly say that I belong to so-and-so Jim, but we refuse to say that I belong to a body of believers who love me. It shows where the church is at. And just to be clear, even the leadership of this church, we need to ask the same questions. Part of what drew me to the idea of covenant membership was realizing that I held myself above all the people in the church. I am the anointed one. I am the leader. I am the pastor. Guys, that's a load of pucky. (laughs) If pastors aren't accountable to their congregations, there is something drastically broken. And part of that is that you need to have a voice to help me submit to you, which is, again, part of covenant membership. The second question I want us to ask today is this, okay? So everybody take a deep breath. I know that was a hard one. We went through, you know, church, Matthew 18, okay. Everybody breathe. Here's the second one. In what community do I see relationships particular to a local church? In what community do I see relationships particular to to a local church? This is a hard question here to understand, so let me explain what I mean. Think of it in terms of the local versus the global bodies of Christ. It's easy to understand that we are not a part of Pastor Marcel's church in Ouagadougou because he's in Burkina. But guys, what about the pastors here in Salem? What about wonderful churches like Salem Heights or Salem Alliance or Dayspring? Are you part of those churches? What about just other random Christians here in Salem who don't go to church? Well, turn with me, if you're not already there, to 1 Corinthians 12, and look at verse 12. 
And what we're going to see here is Paul's going to talk about the body of Christ in a global sense, and then he's going to whittle it down to the church specifically at Corinth. He's going to talk about the local church using the same word, the body, okay? So 1 Corinthians 12, 12. Everybody with me? For just as the body is one and has many members, okay, so there's one Christian body across the world. It has many members. And all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Amen? Amen? For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, that's kind of gross if you think about it, right? It's like Mikey from uh, Mike Wazowski, right? Okay. Walking around as an eyeball. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Okay? One of the main things that we see in a spirit-led church is that each person uses their talents, their gifts, their personalities to care for, love, and grow the body of Christ. And I have to admit and confess to you that, as I said last week, for the first six years, there were really two people and then a bunch of volunteers. Shane and I would use our, uh, our talents. Um, you know, Michael would jump in and fill in for Shane and use his talents, and the band would use their talents. But honestly, that, that's kind of what we were, right? Let's go hear Hans talk. Ugh. The reality is, is that a loving and healthy church, everyone uses their talents and giftings. And I'm finding more and more that because we haven't walked in this, so many of you are going, I don't think I'm talented. No, every single one of you is an amazing gift to everyone else in this church, and we need to figure out how to utilize you and build you and grow you and encourage you in your giftings. And in these sections that we've just gone over, Paul is absolutely talking about the one church of Christ, the one body of Christ that exists in the world. And so you can think about what he's talking about here as a, a single circle that spans the entire globe, okay? The global church. So when somebody says the church, oftentimes they're meaning the global church, everyone who is a Christian. So a person who believes that is correct. This is believers in Salem and Portland and Ouagadougou and Port-au-Prince and so on. But now skip with me down to verse 27. And remember, who is this letter 1 Corinthians written to? Believers where? Corinth. A specific group of believers in Corinth. Most commentators believe they were a smaller church than we are. Maybe around 100 people or less. And he's writing to them, and look at what he says in 1227. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And then what he does is he goes on for all of chapter 13 and chapter 14, and really the rest of 1 Corinthians, teaching them how within their local body, in which they have connection to one another, how to love and care and model and example the gospel. The vast majority of commentators agree that Paul switches from the global church down to the local gathering of believers here. And so when we think about this, we can think about the fact of a local church. Now what's interesting is that in the days of Paul, the way a church functioned was that because there were not many believers in any given town, each city had one church, right? So there was no chance for consumerism. And they were most likely about 50 to 100 people. There were no church buildings, so what they did is they spread out to houses, and most likely an elder would be over that house group, and that elder would care for that group, and the elders of a given church in a city would be the collection of all of those leaders of those small home churches. 
And so you can think about it in this way. There's the global church, but then there's the local church, right? And so here I've got a little circle around, you know, what might be Burkina Faso or even zoom in, and you've got the local church of Ouagadougou specifically. That's what Paul would have thought of as the local church of Corinth. But in 2018, with population growth and tons of Christians, how do we emulate this as closely as possible? Well, what we do is we have a corporate gathering on Sunday here at the church, and then we also have smaller home-based community groups. Now, why do we do that? Why do we break into those smaller groups? Well, remember that our desire as leaders is to help those of you that have heard and accepted the gospel grow in obedience to Jesus as Lord and King. And so in our day and age, it seems to me that it is impractical to think of the local church as just a church in a town. We can't think of it the same way, defined by a city or geography in that way. We have to think smaller than that. And so we have elders over this church. Patrick and I, Patrick Schneider and I, are the two elders over this church. We hope to grow that group once membership is in place, but we're not doing any more work on that until you guys have a say. And then we have deacons and deaconesses, which are over every small community. The reason for that is so you have more resources and more people to love you and care for you. It's not to distance you from either of us as elders or our wives. It is to help you know that we care for you. And they're going to provide the practical hands and feet care while we provide the spiritual care. What defines a local church is our ability to practically love one another. Guys, how easy is that to do for your 500 Facebook friends? But that's how we've started to view the church as a bunch of acquaintances that I have distant relationships to. That's why people from other countries, like Mexico, like Burkina Faso, they come here and they go, what is wrong with you people? Why do you not have any friends? Why do you not love each other? Well, because that's our society is keep a distance. And so what practically loving each other is that we practically take time and energy to encourage, exhort, and be responsible for one another. It means using our gifts to care for our church and then reach out in one unified force to the world around us. So I would submit to you that in today's day and age, we have to think of one more circle or ring of influence, and that's the tiny little dot that is a particular local church. So if this were us, it would be the global church, the church of the United States, down onto the the church of Salem, in which we're all brothers and sisters and we love each other, but the majority of my time and energy and giftings is going to go towards my particular local church because they're the ones I touch and feel and interact with. And this is a given community of believers that exist in a specific spot. Now, in our generation, especially about 20 years ago, there was a big resurgence in the house church movement. Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about, right? The house church movement, okay? And while I think there are some beautiful things about the idea of a smaller, more intimate group within the local church body, and that is why we have community groups, It also seems to me that to be a particular local church, we must look at the word and say, what did a church have? What were the characteristics and qualifications of what made a church? Is it 10 people getting together for a Bible study? So what's the difference then between a group of Christians just hanging out, maybe even studying together, and what defines a church? Well, what I would submit to you on my reading of Scripture is that it is specific types of relationships. Specific types of relationships. One of the things the Bible indicates that a church has is leadership. I know that all of us as autonomous Christians, we would love to have no leadership and all of us just get along. Guys, how well does that work? The Christian anarchy movement is dead because it's anarchy, right? Nobody can take over and lead it. 
And the people that often fight against leadership, they themselves are trying to push for a specific leader to lead them. And so a particular church needs to have leadership. Jesus built up the apostles to be the first leadership of the fledgling church and to disciple and replicate new leaders. And so still today, the relationships that are different within a church are this. A bunch of Christians hanging out, they absolutely still have Jesus as their head. And maybe they submit to one another and they themselves are involved, but there's no leadership. A church has Jesus as the head each of us having to submit to our leaders and to others. And just FYI, I have to submit to our leaders just like you do as a congregant. And then we submit to one another. And then each of us is part of that. This is the only way we can obey a direct command from the author of Hebrews. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Hans, this is the self-serving part. No, guys, this isn't be quiet and do as we say, not as we do. This is obey your leaders as long as they're actually walking in the loving and, and um, gracious will of God and submit to them. For why? We are keeping watch over your souls. We're going to have to give an account one day for each of you that want to be led by us. And so the author of Hebrews asks the congregation there, let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be no advantage to you. Guys, I can tell you having so many friends that are pastors, the church does not obey this command. Do you know what the dropout rate of pastors in the church is? And that's not to say, well, it's all the congregants' fault. Honestly, I think it's because the church has gone upside down in its structure. We don't have any structure to talk to one another in good ways when there's conflict. And I want you guys to be able to obey this, and I want to be able to obey it. And this is referring to a specific church body. Is this calling you to obey every leader you listen to on a podcast? Is this calling you to submit to every person in any given church because they're a Christian? No, this is specific. Am I going to give account for every visitor that comes in this church who stays one week or two weeks? Am I going to give an account for all the people who left our church? I'm not. That, that's not fair. So who, which of you want to be my responsibility, our responsibility as leaders? Which of you do I need to submit to as the members of this church? And which of you will submit to one another? If we don't have a structure in place that can do this, guys, we turn this into kind of this ambiguous, well, those are such great feelings. Yeah, that'd be great to obey your leaders and submit to one another. Isn't that nice? But we don't actually obey it. This is referring to a specific church body, not just any church. Without leaders taking on responsibility for the souls of those they pastor, it seems to me that you can have a gathering of even thousands of Christians listening to someone teach but you would never call it a church. Do you recognize that that's what most conferences are? Thousands of Christians listening to the Bible. Well, why is that any different than what we do on a Sunday? Because that speaker has no responsibility over those people, and they have no requirement to obey that speaker. When these relationships are not in place, the church gets in trouble. And that is why in Titus 1.5, Paul commanded Titus to put the chaotic church in Crete in order. And by that, he meant placing leadership, specifically elders, into place. Look at Titus 1.5 with me here. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If this were the only letter we had, we could say this might have been specific for Crete, but Paul states the same thing to Ephesus in 1 Timothy 3. He says to Timothy, do the same thing. Put old elders and deacons in place. 
Now the question is, why are Christian leaders needed? Wouldn't it be better if we could all just hang out and love one another? Well, because leaders are needed for the importance of administering the sacraments of communion, baptism, and marriage. I have good friends who I've talked to, and they'll marry anybody. They'll place the sacrament of marriage on complete non-believers. And I'm going, why would you do that? Oh, you know, it's a great way to minister to them. Dude, you're affirming for them that God, the creator of the universe, blesses that union when they're in blatant sin and rebellion. You want that on your conscience? I don't look at it that way. All right, well, I do. I have to follow my convictions in that. That's why I state specifically, I will not perform a ceremony if you're living in fornication. Because I'm not going to stand there as the representative of Jesus and go, Jesus is so pleased with you guys. Hey, look at that. Look at that cliff ledge, guys. Isn't that sweet? I just want to minister to you. Let me shove you over it. No, I want to be responsible for those people and love them enough to say, guys, repent. And then I'll walk you through it. I'll walk with you and encourage you. See, the leaders of a church in administering the, the sacraments are fully acting within the authority of the church that was given to Peter, as we talked about earlier, to make sure that we are, to the best of our ability, accurately representing Christ and his opinion when we give affirmation to someone who's claiming to be a Christian. In other words, they state, I am a Christian who knows and accepts the gospel and have declared Christ to be my Lord, and our job as church leaders and elders must then be able to affirm and testify to the fact that we can see evidence of that truth. You see, to baptize someone who doesn't understand the gospel, doesn't know the cost, doesn't know what's required of them, doesn't know what's going to come in their life, and to go, hey, you're good to go, have a nice life, isn't this Jesus-based? That's dangerously irresponsible of that leader because you potentially inoculated them to all future training as a disciple. And I'm hugely convicted of that as a leader. If we perform these sacraments with any hesitation that the person is not a Christian or living, we know that they're living in unrepentant sin, then we're giving assurance and peace when in God's eyes there is no peace for that person. And look at one example with me of how the Lord speaks to the leaders of Israel that do this. Here's what he says to them in Ezekiel 13, 10 through 13. Precisely because they have misled my people saying, peace, when there is no peace. And because when the people build a wall, these prophets, the leaders, they smear it with whitewash saying, meh. That was my addition, just so you know, right? The meh. To those who smear it with a whitewash, that it shall fall. There will be a deluge of rain, and you, O great hailstones, will fall. And a stormy wind breaks out, and when the wall falls, will it not be said to you, where is the coating with which you smeared it? Guys, there are so many well-meaning Christian leaders who've given affirmation to people who they full well know are not Christians. And those people will show up in heaven, and when God says, away from me, I never knew you, you know who they're going to look at? They're not going to look at Jesus and go, what's your problem, dude? They're going to look over to the dude that affirmed them as a Christian and go, what are you, you misled me, you told me I was fine. That's what it means to give account for someone. And we as leaders have a strong conviction we don't want to do that anymore. Because God is serious. I will make a stormy wind break out in my wrath and there shall be a deluge of rain in my anger and great hailstones in wrath to make a full end. Guys, sometimes when I get up here on stage, it's absolutely been my pathology and my brokenness that has made me get super serious with you. And sometimes it's because I'm your pastor and I know that there's a great percentage of you that are walking in unrepentant sin. 
And I love you so much that I'm going to tell you the truth and say, knock it off. It's not my job to be liked. It's my job to speak on behalf of Jesus Christ and help you understand his truth. As leaders, we must speak to truth and affirm truth. To do otherwise is disobedience to Christ. And guys, hear me here. It's unloving to you. It's unloving to you. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 5 and look at how Paul chastises the church at Corinth for not loving someone in their midst enough to confront them about their unrepentant sin. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 13. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated even among the pagans, Paul says. For a man has his father's wife. In other words, he's sleeping with his stepmother. And you are arrogant. He says this to the church, not to the sinner. You are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. In other words, the reason they were arrogant is they thought, it's no big deal. We can just love him out of sin. Let's let's not have have to say anything. And he chastises them for that. Verse 3, for though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Oh, judge not. Now, the Bible's really clear, as he's going to say here in a minute, our job is to judge within the church whether or not you're actually a Christian. Not to the point of abuse. It's actually non-believers we're not supposed to judge. Pause for a second here. What is the current uh, Protestant Christian group really good at? Judging ourselves and whether or not we're walking in hypocrisy or going on Fox News and judging everyone who doesn't even say that they're a Christian? We're really good at that second one. You're walking like a non-believer and the person's like, yeah, because I am. Of course I don't follow Jesus' commands. I think he's a myth. Yeah, see? Right? What's wrong with us as Christians that we do that? They never ask to be judged in that way. We need to close our mouth and look inward to the church and say, are we walking in hypocrisy? Right? He says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are, this is a direct command, you are to deliver this man, this unrepentant sinner, to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That's so terrible and mean. No, look at why. He loves him so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to, sec- not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Uh, since then, you would need to go out of this world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, another Christian, in your congregation. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church who you are to judge? God judges those outside. So purge the evil person from among you. This is a section of scripture, guys, that we like to conveniently forget. Why were they being chastised? Because they were not following the command of Christ to go to that person and speak loving truth as commanded in Matthew 18. 
because they were not following the command to discern whether or not a brother was acting in a way that matched his profession of faith. And because Paul's implication is that if they loved him, they would, in love for him, remove him from the covenant community and kingdom of Christ and allow him to sit in the kingdom within which he was acting, the kingdom of Satan. This, at least, Paul says, may shock them enough that they might repent and be saved at the end of days. Remember how last week, guys, I pressed us to ask the question as to whether or not we were being obedient to God's word. This is the main reason. This and Matthew 18 and Matthew 16, this text we've gone over, these are the main texts that the leadership team and I were challenged by and convicted in realizing we don't do this as a church. We as a church are disobedient to the commands of Scripture. And I'm sure you don't want to be led by disobedient leaders. Because as the priests go, so go the people. We not only realized we as individuals were being disobedient, but that we were leading in disobedience by not structuring the church in a way in which we could indeed know who makes up the members, who wants to be accountable, and that if needed, we could love one another and exhort one another in the way Christ commands us. To obey this command, we can no longer rely on our gut feeling of who is a believer or even wrongly look at attendees that way. Now, guys, listen to me. Hear me, because I can sense you guys are like, wah, wah, okay? This is for your protection. Hopefully, we will never need to employ the fullness of Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5 in this church. But in the rare case where one of you asks us, before you ever step into sin, one of you asks us to pursue you because you, as a covenant member, do not want to fall to the deceitfulness of sin, We will love you enough that we will use the last remaining relational capital we have with you to help you step back from it. The last step of Matthew 18 isn't abuse, guys. It's saying, please repent and conform to Christ. And if you decide not to, we have no choice but to acknowledge and affirm your choice to remove yourself from fellowship and agree with you that you are no longer walking as a Christian. I can guarantee you that we will never kick a person out of this church. I can guarantee you that if they affirm that they no longer want covenant relationship because they would rather pursue sin than walking with their brothers and sisters, we will absolutely affirm for them that they have that right and they are free to leave. That is the last step of Matthew 18. To me, that seems like a church that loves its members. If they are willing to go to that length to try and restore a member who has fallen and is walking contrary to Christ and his word. And guys, if you disagree with me, that's absolutely your right, and I love you for it. But I want you to ask the question, do you disagree because of what you've read in Scripture or because of past hurts, past pains, and future fears that you might be abandoned? What we're trying to tell you is we will never abandon you even when you choose to abandon us because of your sin. Now just to be clear, because I know this will come up, our goal is not to search out sin just for fun. In fact, it is the worst day when I find out someone I love is walking in unrepentant sin. When we as elders begin to meet with members proactively in their homes, the point will not be to come in and inspect their lives, although I must tell you, I always see the top of your fridge and it's gross. You need to clean it. I may inspect that part of your house. 
but don't come inspect mine because I'm a hypocrite and mine's just as dirty. (laughs) What it will be is for us to lovingly sit down with you and see how we can come alongside you as you fight the biggest battle of your life against the kingdom of darkness. We will come alongside you to encourage you, to pray for you, to pray with you, to help you identify and fight against any predispositions to sin in your life. All of this is done voluntarily. If you don't want us to come into your house, we won't come in. But it's done voluntarily out of love and protection. And if sin enters out of a desire to restore you and give you confidence in your walk with Jesus. And that is why the statement in the obligations of the elders regarding church discipline, it's really just church restoration. And it says this is our obligation to you as covenant members. To provide correction and lovingly, lovingly exercise church discipline when needed. For the good of the church and the good of the one being corrected. We further covenant to do so wisely and in reflection of the love of the Father and always with the end goal of restoration. So many of us in this room don't want that because quite honestly, our fathers were authoritarian and we're scared to death of having another authoritarian father figure in our life. That is not what I want to do, guys. I want to come in and I want to walk with you. And so a second way of defining your local church is this, guys. It's the covenant community in which the relationships of leaders, others, and self are co-equal, in co-equal submission under Jesus. The covenant community in which the relationships of leaders, others, and self are in co-equal submission under Jesus. I want to recognize two things before I leave this point, and then I'm getting on to my last point. First, please know that this does not mean, and I need you to hear this, guys. Please know this. This does not mean that we are asking you to not have other relationships with family or friends or believers outside of mission or non-believers. Guys, all those relationships must still exist. But at the same time, I believe the word calls us to prioritize the set of relationships with whom we have covenanted to grow together in the image of Christ. If we take that part seriously of our life, then we need to prioritize those relationships, not not in a sense to say that they're better, but because we need that help. And secondly, I recognize that the idea of submission to many of you has a ring of abuse as you have had to endure harm at the hands of churches and church leaders. I find it providentially interesting that in the last three or four months, many of you who've come who are newer to the church have just gone through horrific pain in the midst of churches. And I pray that what's going on here is that the Lord is bringing you to a place where the leaders are convicted that they want to be accountable to you just as we want you to be accountable to us. And I'm praying that it will bring healing for you. Our goal in these changes is not to create an environment where leaders are exempt. You must realize that our previous structure, the elders had all the power and you had none. That is wrong. It is sinful and broken. And so we wanted to create an environment where leaders were accountable. We realized that the structure we had could potentially lead to a kind of abuse and exemption from accountability that we've seen break other churches, even here in Salem, to a great degree. And so we desire the right to be accountable to you. We want that. We desire to right the wrong and make all of us as a body accountable to each other. So with that said, the last question I want to ask 
to help us define what the church is, is this. With whom am I agreeing to pursue the purposeful process of sanctification? With whom am I agreeing to pursue the purposeful process of sanctification? I got really Baptist with my P's there, right? Pursue, purposeful, process. Sorry. Go ahead, write it down. The last way that we can define the local church is by recognizing that while the Holy Spirit works within each one of us to bring conviction individually, the Spirit also resides in the fullness of the church. And so to say that I walk in the guidance of the Spirit is not just to walk by the guidance of my own heart, but also by that as well as the fullness of the Spirit in which I get counsel from those around me that are submitted to Christ. We have got to stop saying the Lord told me to do this or that. What we've done with the commandment, don't take the Lord's name in vain, is we've turned it into don't curse using Jesus' name. If my sons go to you and they say, in the authority of my father as pastor, you should do this, they have just taken my name in vain, my authority in vain, if I didn't actually give them that command. And I find so many Christians, just in the feelings of their own heart and their own angst and their own stuff, they won't talk to any other spirit-led Christians. They'll just decide what they're going to do, and then they'll tell other Christians, the Lord told me. Guys, be careful. Unless you heard an audible voice from God, you're playing with fire. You have the great potential to be using the Lord's name in vain. Now, maybe I'm just a wordsmith, and, and I like the idea of, you know, I was reading the word, and I felt this conviction, and I'm, I'm hoping it's correct. I'm, I'm hoping you'll give me some counsel, but this is what I'm feeling. I think that's a way more safe way of saying, I feel led by the Lord. Because then you're not saying it's absolutely his authority that's telling me to do something. You want to know how you can gain that authority? Build up counselors in your life within your local body and outside of it that you trust and that you see that their life is walking in accordance with this command, these commands and this scripture. And then go to them and check the feelings that you have in your spirit with what they're saying. And if they align, ah, dude, you can totally go around saying, the Lord told me. It's in his word. Uh, Godly counsel said it. Uh, The spirit inside me said it. I know this is the Lord. But if that person questions you, you got to question it a bit. I mean, did the spirit in them break? To say that we're led by the Spirit, we need to consider the church body. And this is because we are all a priesthood of believers. There's not any one of us that is a bigger priest than another, including me. And that's why Peter calls us the priesthood of believers. Look at what he says here. This is in 1 Peter 2. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Look at that. A royal priesthood, a holy nation. That was reserved for the high priests and the priesthood of Israel a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Guys, this has covenant written all over it, which we'll get into next week. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which waged war against your soul. Priests acted on the behalf of the people, and so as a priesthood of believers, we act on behalf of one another. This means that each one of us use our roles to lead or follow, but we also have co-equal voice in leading and exhorting one another. And this process is the work of the priesthood of believers. This is why we sing the benediction we do at the end of every Sunday gathering. I can see it on your faces. You guys love that. You're like, oh man, this is so cool. We're singing together. The reason we do that is because you're fulfilling your role as priests for your brothers and sisters. 
The song we sing comes out of number six, where God tells Moses to command Aaron and the priesthood to say a blessing on behalf of God over the people. And by us singing it to one another, we are placing that blessing on each other. By sending his spirit into the church, we now each play that role in one another's life with Jesus as our forever high priest, and we as his priesthood. And so now the question is, with whom can you work through this process of sanctification? Uh, Can you do it with every other Christian? To an extent, you absolutely can. Because all Christians are being sanctified at different rates in different ways at different times. But man, to be purposeful in it, you've got to recognize that there's actually a process built into how the church is supposed to function in the local church. The way that the process of sanctification works, if it's very purposeful, is this. First, we are fed the same instruction and discipleship from the Word of God. See, when you guys hear from me, you, you hear different things, but for the most part, you hear the same message, and so then you're held to account to keep it, right? Let's reduce it down to something really dumb. Uh, let's say that I teach one Sunday on the, the pain of lying, right? And so then you find out that your brother or sister is lying to you. You can go to them and go like, dude, we heard the same message. Why are you doing this? There's an accountability there by hearing the same message and having a common teaching together on the Lord's day. But then we take what we learn and practice it with one another in the midst of our community. We're to grow in these practices, these commands that we hear with each other, not for moralistic deism, not to check off a list, but because we want to grow into the image of Jesus. And the key to this is that we must be living life together in such proximity and consistency that we have a chance to see each other throughout the week. It's easy to pretend on Sunday mornings or for the two community groups a month that you have it together, but those are just the base camp, if you will. The summit of living life together is exhorting, encouraging, and strengthening one another throughout the course of everyday life. I can't remember who it was that came over to our house the other day. Our house is like a bus station sometimes for the church, just people in and out, right? But uh, somebody dropped by and they they came in for a second and Kelly came to me afterwards. She said, I'm so sorry uh, that I didn't tell you that they were coming by because, you know, I had the bed head and I was in my PJ pants, right? And like a sweatshirt. And I'm like, I opened the door. I'm like, what's up? God bless you. Right? (laughs) A slobber's dripping down my beard. I slept in this morning. Hi. Right? As you you probably thought, this is my pastor? I'm like, yes, right? And she needed a few things, and we were trying to help her out, you know, in the midst of their adoption and everything. And so, so Kelly said that. I, I, I didn't say it at the time, but it dawned on me later. I'm like, wow, what a brokenness in the church that we have to be concerned that people only see our best side. What a brokenness. Because, guys, when you come in and I've had a terrible day and I yell at my kids, I want you to see that. You know why? Because I'm on that precipice and I need you so badly to put your arm around me and go, was your day bad? Yeah, it really was. (laughs) Pray for me and then go, brother, how can I help you so that you grow out of this thing that is detrimental to your kids? Oh, praise God. Thank you so much because my kids need that. They need their Uncle Tiger, Tyler. They need their Uncle Dallas. They need their Uncle Shane. They need their Uncle Jordan, their Uncle Ethan. You're like, I don't even hang out with you that much. You're still their uncle. You're a brother in Christ to me. That's what the church is supposed to be. We can't keep trying to live life with perfection. We have to take the mask off. And this is why we made the change in community groups based on geographic area. Because if you have to drive 30 minutes, you got a lot of time to fix your face in the mirror before you get there. You need to live in proximity so that people can see your junk and help you through it. Not, not judge you in terms of you stink, but look at you and go, boy, there's some things I can help out with. Can you help me out too? And that's how we grow together. 
By being in close proximity and relationship to one another, we have to work on our stuff. And so teaching is necessary to give us our marching orders for sanctification, but community is the training ground where we begin employing those orders. And evangelism is the result of what happens when our sanctification begins to reflect a transformation in us that can only come from the work of the Holy Spirit in us and in the surrounding body of our community. And this transformation should be so bright and blinding to those other relationships we have outside this church that they desire to hear the good news. They don't need you to force a tract down their throat. They don't need you to give them the four spiritual laws. They will come to you when they see that kind of love and community. And they will say, why? There's the chance for evangelism. Are we trying to become a less evangelistic church? No, quite the opposite. We're trying to become an effective evangelistic church. And so as a believer, I must prioritize this process of sanctification with those believers for whom I am responsible above all other relationships. Not to the exclusion of those relationships with other Christians or non-believers, but I take seriously this process. And if I do, I will prioritize time, talents, treasure with the people that God has placed me in community with. And the reality is that every believer, every one of you, God commands you to do this, whether you do it here at Mission or somewhere else. And so guys, if you are sitting here today going, this all sounds awesome and I hear it, but honestly, this isn't my community. You have to weigh two, two variables. You have to weigh, do you have another community somewhere else that you need to go to and be part of so you can continue that process of sanctification? And while it will break our hearts because we love you, it is the right thing to do. At the same time, you must weigh the teaching under which that community sits because if you're going to go to that community and every Sunday hear peace, peace, when there is no peace, that's just as dangerous as not having a community. You must weigh those two variables and figure out, you know what, mission isn't perfect, but maybe it's the place the Lord's called me because, you know, Hans is okay sometimes in his teaching, right? And then there's the community that's growing. Or maybe you go, yeah, someplace else isn't perfect, but to be obedient to these two variables, I need to go there. I want to release you with blessing to do that. Because I want to stand before Jesus one day, and even if you weren't part of my flock, I want to praise God for the fact that you were obedient to him somewhere else. And so the last part of our definition of the church today is this. Our definition of the church is the the covenant community with whom I am agreeing to pursue the purposeful process of sanctification. While this is not the fullness of the definition of the church, and I'm sure you guys would be able to add to it very wisely, I believe this will help us see what defines the local church to which we must belong versus the more ambiguous community of believers in our city or the world. This definition, the covenant community of God's people to which I belong and to whom I submit, in which the relationships of leaders, others, and myself are in co-equal submission under Jesus and with whom I am agreeing to pursue the purposeful process of sanctification. I want to reiterate for you guys, my, my desire today is not to debate with you. I don't want you to hear me as trying to force you into covenant membership. I simply want to be honest and truthful with you of what I see in Scripture, and I want you to wrestle with it. If after wrestling with it, you come back to me and you say, Hans, I think you're full of it, I will give you a hug and I will say, I do too sometimes. It's okay. So next week we will tackle the question of why is covenant necessary for sanctification and obedience? And the following week we will tackle the question, why is congregational authority 
necessary for sanctification and obedience. And guys, I would beg of you, be here for those. If you consider yourself part of this church, don't wake up and hit the snooze button next week. Don't think, oh, I got better things to do. Be here for those. They're very, very important. And we will leave lots of room for your questions as well at the end. So please stick with us as we go through this short series, and then you can ask or, or debate or do whatever you'd like to do. But my application for us today as a church is to take these questions, to take these definitions, to take these verses, and ask yourself whether or not your view of the local church and your participation in it lines up with what Scripture is saying. If it does, and we disagree, then praise God. But I call you to wrestle with this teaching this morning. And my prayer is that for many of us today, for most of us, if not all of us, that the Holy Spirit will bring clarity and peace and that he will help us further understand our motivation and the motivation of the leaders behind the changes here at Mission Fellowship. And most of all, that he will help you guys understand that these changes are done out of love for Jesus, out of reverence for his word, out of a desire to obey him, and most of all, out of a deep and abiding love for each and every one of you.